I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. I'm on a plane to Shanghai in the morning. My first plunge into the turbulence of China rising. The mighty Napoleon is supposed to have said, let China sleep, for when she awakes, she will shake the world. No question in the 21st century that China has awoken. Some question that she was ever asleep, but it's an open certainty that a revitalized China, reclaiming its medieval place in the forefront of technology and commerce in the world, changes everything, starting with itself. Multi-millions of Chinese on the move, from farm to factory, from village to skyscraper, heads spinning, spirits hungering, in a communist culture of ant-heap equality that's turning to main chance enterprise. I'm asking what to look for, what to believe, what questions to ask in the new China. Our guests in conversation this hour are briefing all of us on that whirlwind in progress, the biggest, fastest, deepest social transformation in human history, on the bedrock of the oldest civilization in the world. Evan Osnos is first up with some of the contradictions inside a high-functioning dictatorship, his phrase. He's been the New, Yorker, the New Yorker magazine's man in Beijing, writing from China for eight years now. Ambassador Chaz Freeman was, 40 years ago, the young foreign service officer who translated the breakthrough conversations of President Nixon and Chairman Mao. Ambassador Freeman is troubled by the mistrust at both ends of this relationship these days. And then Yi Yun Li is the China-born novelist now rooted in Oakland, California, and UC Davis. She is struck by the way we Americans still misread the Chinese people. And the art historian at Harvard, Eugene Wang, is going to point me directly at things that an American in China must see before we come home, and not just the wall. Evan Osnos, in a conversation we recorded this week, said what he began to see in China was a reckless boom era in American history being repeated. I mean, one of the things that interests me, Chris, about this odd government and economic system in China is that it is a high-functioning dictatorship. That's, that's what it is, after all. And we don't really have much experience with that in human history. You know, we have very low-functioning dictatorships. You have Mobutu, and you have uh, in Hosni Mubarak, and you have all of these examples of places in which tyranny kept people ultimately in chains, or at least in poverty. And China's done something very different and very odd, which is that it has allowed people to get rich at the same time that it has not given them political freedom. And it's not altogether clear to us whether this is sustainable. Is this possible? It's a huge question. Where would a guy like me go to get even remotely plausible answers? This collision between um, a despotic government and a, a booming economy. For one thing, you have to go to Beijing. Chairman Mao used to say of Beijing, it's the crucible through which everybody is formed. And he was speaking from experience. You know, he came from the countryside as a librarian and in a kind of aspiring revolutionary. And he got to the capital where you had all of the misfits and the oddballs from every village in China converging on, on Beijing. And that was this political primordial soup from which the country emerged. And so you have to go there partly because for a long time, uh, cities in China used to be the exception. They really were not the experience that most people who called themselves Chinese ever had because the country was overwhelmingly rural and, and poor. And today, China's not that way. It's something else. It's passed for the first time in history. It's now majority urban. So more than 50% of the population lives in a city. So you have to go to the cities and you have to kind of grapple with that. 
and see what it looks like to see that 40% of the skyscrapers under construction anywhere in the world are being built in China. You also want to feel what that energy feels like. And it's always interesting when you go to a Chinese city to ask people where they come from. Very few of them actually come from those cities. That reminds me in some odd ways of America, after all. I mean, if you'd come to America 100 years ago, or where would you have gone? You know, you would have gone to California, perhaps, to see the gold rush and to see what it meant to have, for instance, the Transcontinental Railroad finally link one side of the country to the other side. And you would have also, if you'd gone to California 100 or 120 years ago, you would have seen this, these spectacular demonstrations of corruption. And you also would have seen people who had gone from nothing and had built themselves into America's first plutocrats. Living in China for eight years made me fascinated by the story of America's kind of muscular period at the end of the 19th century. Yeah, it's a fascinating thread in your book that China is uh, doing what this country did between the Civil War and 1900. What did you say? There were a score of millionaires at the end of the Civil War in this country. There were 40,000 by... By the time Teddy Roosevelt called them the malefactors of great wealth, um, so it's a it's a kind of classic process, but but so infinitely bigger. Well, it is infinitely bigger. I mean, the dynamics are familiar to us as Americans. This idea that, after all, you know, at the end of the Civil War, um, the United States had to put itself back together in much the same way that China had to put itself back together after the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s and 70s. And you also had this enormous pent-up economic energy that had gone untapped. And, you know, the United States, over the course of two or three decades, surpassed Britain and France in the production of steel, for instance. And all of a sudden, you know, the country had built this railroad that all of a sudden allowed people to get places they could never have gone before. And China today is building more high-speed rail than the rest of the world combined. So some of that sense of ambition, that soaring kind of belief in possibility about what this country could become, whether we're talking about China or the United States, that feels familiar to us. It, it does feel a little bit, to be in China today feels a little bit like you dropped into a moment in American history that we can only read about. And I found after living there for all these years that some of the most helpful things I could read about China were actually in the work of Mark Twain. Like <laughs> exactly. That. Yeah, because he would write about like what it felt like to go abroad for the first time. And what it felt like to go to Europe as an American and how self-conscious that made you feel. There are people in your book who say that kind of social transformation and the financial explosion has sort of hit the wall. And, uh, and lots of people asking, searching, hungering for more. The, maybe the past, maybe spirit life. Speak about some of those searches and what's driving it. Well, what happened as people began to satisfy their most basic material needs, you know, they had shelter and food in adequate quantities, really almost for the first time in Chinese history. Then they began to ask some bigger questions about what it meant to be Chinese in the year 2014. I mean, what are our relationships to each other as, as citizens? What are my obligations to you as a neighbor, for instance? What people discovered is that the institutions that they, that they used to rely on no longer make that much sense to them anymore. Frankly, they don't trust the party anymore. They don't trust the newspapers anymore. They don't really even trust corporations anymore because they've discovered that the quality of ingredients, for instance, of baby formula has been adulterated in a way that has harmed some of society's most vulnerable people. And as they've discovered that, they've come to realize that they have what they call in Chinese a jingsheng kongxu, which is a spiritual void. It's like a hole at the center of Chinese moral life. And they're trying to fill it. 
And each person is, in that sense, each person is trying to fill it with their own answer. And so as a result, I lived through this period in which people were going firing in all kinds of different directions. For, for instance, they'd pursue one kind of religion, or they might then pivot and pursue another kind of religion. In fact, in our neighborhood in Beijing, where my wife and I lived, we happened to live right next door to the Confucius Temple. And then we were across the street from the, a Tibetan temple called the Lama Temple. And we would see people go from the Tibetan temple, and then they'd go to the Confucius temple. And then on the way home, just to be safe, they'd <laughs> stop at a Catholic church and maybe light a candle on the principle that you never really know. But I mean, also on the principle that they were trying out this new sense of what it means to, to believe in something. Because for so long of the last 30 years, people in China really haven't had the luxury of believing in anything except the pursuit of fortune, the pursuit of the most elemental thing in their life, which is financial security. And now that they've begun to achieve it, they're starting to look over the parapet and say, well, what else is there? And that's what leads them into these moral inquiries. Two questions come to mind. One, where is Confucius? But also, what's the connection between Gorbachev going to the Pope, finally surrendering? We made a mistake in crushing spiritual life of that old Christian nation. China at the moment, I mean, the Chinese government is very worried about what this religious revival can mean for the country. And that's partly because they look at the Soviet experience. They're very aware of it. They talk about it openly. I mean, the president of China today, Xi Jinping, talks about the fact that he will never, as he says, make the mistakes that Gorbachev made, which led to the decline and fall of the Soviet Union. He says this explicitly. Which mistakes is he alluding? Well, he means that when there were people inside the Soviet Union who stood up and said, there is pressure for reform, we must accommodate that pressure, that by taking those first steps that eventually began to unravel the whole system. Xi Jinping looks at that and he has said explicitly, there was nobody man enough, that's the term he uses, to resist that pressure. And as a result, all was lost. And so, you know, the Chinese government today sees itself in a bit of a race against the clock, because at this stage, if it can survive another eight years to 2000 let's see, 22, it will surpass the Soviet Union as the world's longest running one-party state. And I think it sees that as both uh, an objective and also something forbidding because it recognizes that it's in uncharted territory. The president of China these days, Xi Jinping, speaks of the Chinese dream. And people have told me nobody knows what it is. Uh, can you explain it and what he's playing to? I'm not sure that when he introduced this concept that he knew exactly what he meant. And he's developed this idea over the course of a couple of years. But the Chinese dream in the mind of Xi Jinping is what he describes as the great renewal of the Chinese nation. And that means not just economic prosperity, but it really means a return to a more glorious image of itself. The China that, that, that really uh, is in the memory of the Chinese people. It's, this is a country, after all, that was the dominant civilization for most of the last few thousand years. You know, this is a country that was printing books 400 years before Gutenberg. This is a country that, as recently as the 18th century, had one-third of the world's wealth within its borders. Uh, you know, there were places in China that were as cosmopolitan and developed in their own ways as Western European cities. And then it went into this period of 100 years of political turmoil and deprivation and invasion. 
And he is saying to people that the Chinese dream is to return to that period of greatness, to return to that sense of, of a more glorious China. But when he came up with this idea and started talking about it, I went around Beijing and talked to people about what is the Chinese dream? I mean, I asked my neighbors, for instance, in the center of town where we lived, and I asked my next door neighbor, who was a widow named Jim Baozhu, and I said, what's the Chinese dream? And she said, well, my Chinese dream is to beat your landlord in the lawsuit that I filed. <laughs> and then I asked somebody else, what's your Chinese dream? Or what's the Chinese dream? And he said, well, my Chinese dream is to go to Singapore to visit my son. And so I, I got the sense that it's, there may be a Chinese dream that the government has introduced but it may turn out to be a much more complicated idea than even they recognized when they proposed it, because you've got a billion people who are now interpreting it in their own ways. That was Evan Osnos of The New Yorker magazine, his fine new book, In the Grand Manner of Foreign Correspondence Back to Marco Polo, covers an impossibly huge story in high style. It's titled Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China. Our guest, Chaz Freeman, was in on the start of it. When Richard Nixon signaled the 180-degree turn on China in 1971 and landed in Beijing to seal a workable friendship with Mao, Chaz Freeman was between them, translating. It was Chaz Freeman's opening to a strong-minded diplomatic career in China and then in the Middle East. He is with us by phone from Washington, D.C. Mr. Ambassador, listen to these words. They may sound familiar. From Richard Nixon in Beijing, 1971. Prime Minister, Chairman Chong, and our Chinese and American friends. This magnificent banquet marks the end of our stay in the People's Republic of China. We have been here a week. This was the week that changed the world. You remember the day, Chai Freeman? I do indeed. Um, that was uh, as we wound up the a visit which ended up uh, changing China, ironically, even more than it changed the world. And how about the relations? You've been saying lately that this is a bad time between the U.S. and China today for reasons well, that never make uh, the news, and that's what I want to hear about. Uh, it is a bad time um, for uh, very complex reasons. Uh, the United States and China now found ourselves on opposite sides uh, with respect to a series of Chinese territorial disputes with neighbors extending from Japan to uh, the South China Sea, uh, the Philippines and Vietnam in particular. Um, and uh, in the case of Japan and the Philippines, uh, the United States has extended a commitment to go to war uh, if uh, China challenges uh, our, our allies' uh, claims, even though Ironically, we ourselves don't accept their claims. What, what does that mean? That means that we defend them, but we don't accept them. In Japan, um, we have a treaty that commits us to defend areas under Japanese administrative control. Hmm. And the Japanese, in our view, control the Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands even though we don't accept their sovereignty over those islands, which is disputed with China. But because they're under Japanese administrative control, uh, we have said uh, we will go to war over them. What's the danger here? Uh, well, it's rather acute. Um, basically, uh, we have handed uh, allies who are, in many respects, 
more protectorates than allies because they have no obligation to come to our aid. Um, we have handed them the power to decide whether we're at peace or war with the world's largest rising economy and uh, most uh, powerful society uh, other than us. Coming up on 100 years after World War One, which started in a vaguely analogous way, right? Well, there are some eerie parallels. Um, uh, there is a fascination on the part of our military with offensives. Uh, they are preparing something called air-sea battle, which envisages hmm. deep strikes into Chinese territory to incapacitate Chinese strategic systems and destroy China's capacity to uh, retaliate. Excuse me, but who, who, who says they're doing that and why? Who's telling them to do it, to be prepared with air, for an air-sea well, battle? there's an office in, in the Pentagon that is devoted to developing a doctrine called air-sea battle, and I think it's uh, just as technically brilliant as the Schlieffen plan, which the German general staff uh, drew up to knock out uh, France and uh, hold Russia at bay in World War I. Uh, was, uh, and equally politically obtuse. Hmm. Uh, the Germans never considered the fact that if they went through Belgium, they would uh, uh, they would give the British uh, a reason to enter the war against them. And they thought there would be a short, victorious, decisive battle. Uh, and, of course, as we all know, it turned out to be a war of attrition with horrendous uh, costs. And hmm. some of the same erroneous assumptions seem to be underlying uh, thinking, uh, at least on our side, possibly on the Chinese side too, uh, as we uh, as we watch these uh, uh, these con potential conflicts unfold. Uh, just a day or so ago, uh, Japanese and Chinese fighter aircraft uh, jousted with each other in the air between Japan and China. Uh, mutual recriminations and protests and so forth has ensued. But again, uh, you know, we have an alliance with Japan. Uh, we are hostage to whatever decisions Japan makes. And um, I don't think uh, enough people are paying attention to this. Meantime, Chai Freeman, you've written that China is rebooting its economy, uh, starting a, you know, with a new however many year plan, and also it's restructuring its international development banking. I mean, what's that about? Well, part of the consequence of uh, rising animosity between uh, the United States and China is that uh, uh, Chinese are now allowing their frustration with existing U.S.-created and dominated institutions like the uh, International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, uh, the Asian Development Bank, which has traditionally been dominated by Japan and the U.S., uh, to lead them to develop parallel workarounds or new institutions. Uh, so, for example, in the case of the Asian Development Bank, um, uh, they have uh, just taken the lead in creating a parallel Asian infrastructure investment bank, which will not follow the U.S. and Japanese rules in lending to projects in Asia, namely, will not imply political or environmental or other criteria, uh, and uh, it does not include the U.S. or Japan. Uh, the IMF uh, in Fortaleza in Brazil in July 
the BRICS, uh, that is uh, uh, the uh, Russians, the Indians, the Chinese, the Brazilians, and the South Africans, uh, are basically, with Chinese money, uh, expected to start a parallel uh, development bank uh, that would supplant much of the role of the IMF and IBRD in hmm. international finance. And finally, um, the U.S. sanctions on Russia, which have cut off Visa and MasterCard from Russians, uh, have led the Russians to look for alternatives that avoid uh, clearance of transactions through U.S.-dominated institutions. And lo and behold, China has something called Union Pay, hmm. which uh, can fulfill that role. Uh, and uh, we're looking at some kind of uh, monetary uh, cooperation there, which uh, would basically, among other things, uh, knock out our ability to uh, sanction Iran and other places as they've done. Ambassador Freeman. So there's a lot going on. Yeah, and none of it particularly cheerful. Uh, fit in one more important news item, and that is the Russian-Chinese oil deal. Well, it's gas, actually. More gas, than I beg your pardon. Sorry. It's very important um, in that, it's first of all, it's the largest commercial transaction in history. And while some people poo-poo it, uh, it's going on for a long time. Um, tide oil and shale gas, which have uh, been a tremendous boon to uh, the United States in terms of reducing our uh, strategic dependence on imports, uh, probably have about a 10-year run, and then we'll be back to uh, where we were. And uh, this is going to go on. And uh, it's part of a general trend uh, where our pushing on the Russians on their uh, west and our pushing on the Chinese on their east um, have drawn the two together in ways that Richard Nixon certainly would not have favored. <laughs> and the young Foreign Service officer, Chaz Freeman, probably wouldn't have advised either. Uh, one, one more general question. We Americans know roughly our wariness of this rising uh, power in the East. I want to know how the, how the Chinese see themselves in this game. And how would I, as a, as a tourist, as a visitor, uh, suss out what their view of their, their place in the world is coming to be? Well, I think you just had a good conversation with Evan Osnos, and uh, I commend uh, his book to anyone who wants to understand the answer to the question you've just raised, um, because he really talks about China vividly from the ground up uh, in precisely the terms that you that you uh, uh, you raise. Um, I would say that uh, uh, the Chinese are an enormously uh, individualistic, uh, rather undisciplined, um, and very selfish uh, group of people hmm. um, who, uh, in many respects, as he argues, mirror us uh, during our gilded age hmm. in their values. Uh, and their leadership is trying to impose a vision, uh, a dream on them, which uh, they may or not buy, may or may not buy into, uh, which evokes the grandeur of China's past, which is undeniable, uh, and tries to defend its imagined frontiers against challenges from weaker neighbors. Hmm. 
Uh, so what we're having, we're seeing going on now is a struggle uh, by China finally to define its borders with its neighbors and settle into the region uh, in a newly powerful role. Chinese are proud of their country. Uh, they're very aware of the tremendous progress it has made. Uh, they're not very confident, however, that it's going to continue to make mm. that progress. Uh, they hedge bets. Uh, as Evan said, they go to the uh, Tibetan lamasery, they go to the Confucius temple, they go to the Catholic church and the <laughs> underground Protestant churches, and uh, they hedge their bets. <laughs> That's so fascinating. Uh, I'm also wondering, you know, do they still see themselves, I mean, going back to memories of the opium wars, as a kind of put upon people, as injured innocents in, 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 in the big game? I, I, maybe that's a, maybe I should come back to you for that because I want to introduce Yi Yun Li on this general subject of why it isn't a happier uh, relationship these days. Yi Yun Li joins us by phone from Oakland, California. She is on many short lists of the finest younger novelists in America for The Vagrants and now for a new book, new novel called Kinder Than Solitude. Yi Yun Li was born in Beijing. She was polished up at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. She was decorated by the MacArthur Foundation with a Genius Award. Yi Yun Li, welcome. You're, you patrol the human one-to-one -one dimensions of the connections and the gaps between us and China. What's, yes. what, what's up? What's the problem? <laughs> what's the problem? That's a very good question. I think... You know, I, I, I really enjoy listening to Evan Osnos and, and Ambassador. And this, interesting to me is, I think there's this conflict in China. I think America is a self-made country. So Americans are very used to this concept of, you know, being self-made. I mean, if, if they at American history, hmm. you know, the gold rush, people you know became rich because they worked hard. And I think a lot of Chinese you, labor and all of that railroad building too. Let's remember. That's right. But if you look at China, I mean, if you look at twenty years ago, you cannot, you could not possibly be a self-made man because there's no self allowed. And at mm. this moment, I think people, you know, see the possibility of you know being self-made. On the other hand, you know, as Evan pointed out, there's still this dictatorship. So that self-made, or you know, how how safe yourself is. It's very interesting to me to watch Chinese people, you know, struggle with this, you know, the, the security of their wealth. And many of them want to come to America because of that. Because of the banks. Yes. <laughs> Those good because, old American you know, banks. You never know when you are, you know, the next corrupted official, you're going to be, you know, put into jail. So it's it's a chaos. Those banks that are too big to fail. Why isn't China too big to fail? Well, certainly China could be, you know, too big to... I mean, I think China could fail in in the way that... I mean, nobody could tell this is a big country, you know, a big rolling snowball, rolling bigger and bigger. And could it, you know, there be a moment that the snowball would just fall apart? There certainly could be that moment. Yi Yun Li, at a very sort of personal, human level. I mean, I've learned more in this hour than I than I knew before about 
the Chinese self or non-self or self-made people, uh, self-reliant people or getting there or not. But in terms of our fundamental position, perceptions of these, uh, we don't say it anymore, but these can-do, incredibly clever, maybe superior people, what, what's the obstacle to, to, it's not just friendship, it's kind of inclusion. We're in this thing together in as much as we are with the Eskimos or the Pygmies or, or everybody. There's a difference in our feeling about the Chinese. What is it? You know, I, it, it's interesting because in China, I, 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 you know, I read Chinese newspapers and I watch Chinese websites. And on the Chinese side, the, the idea is America needs an, an, an enemy. And now Soviet Union was not there anymore. America still needed an enemy. So China, you know, becoming is what was taking, you know, over that role. I'm not sure I buy into that concept. But on the other hand, there's also the ideological differences between the two countries. And I think, I mean, it's hard still for Americans, you know, for general Americans to accept a communist country, I think. Hmm. Charles Freeman, I wonder what you think is at the at the root of a of an abiding mistrust. Richard Nixon was ready to let it go forty uh, some years ago, and it's still there. Well, I think there are ideological differences which we agreed in nineteen seventy two to set aside, but which after the uh, June fourth uh, Tiananmen, June fourth nineteen eighty nine Tiananmen incident, uh, very much uh, returned. Um, I think uh, uh, that, in fact, as was just said, uh, most Americans find it very difficult to believe that uh, a communist government can have legitimacy. Uh, and yet most of the polls suggest that about 85% of the Chinese people are quite satisfied with their system, although they may have individual complaints, which is a much higher level of satisfaction than Americans have with our system. Uh, Chinese leaders are far more respected than, uh, for example, our Congress, which hovers in the single-digit uh, range on occasion hmm. in terms of uh, public approval. So I think there is an ideological issue uh, there. I think there's also a psychological question. Um, uh, we Americans, sometime between 1870 and 1880, became the world's largest economy. And early in the 20th century, uh, 100 years or so ago, uh, World War I, we emerged as the dominant financial and eventually the dominant military power in the world. And we've become accustomed to that status. Hmm. And suddenly, we're told this year, uh, China will overtake our economy in size in purchasing power terms, and probably by before the end of the decade in terms of exchange rates, uh, and it's closing on us in terms of military power, at least in terms of military power on its own periphery. Um, and uh, politically, it seems to have a better batting average than we do at uh, making strategic decisions. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. We're indulging me in an open briefing as I leave for China with Ambassador Chaz Freeman in Washington the novelist Yi Yun Lee in California, and in our studio, Eugene Wang. He's an art historian at Harvard, a culture watcher, 
around the world. You're my guide in Shanghai, Eugene Wang. Walk me around, but particularly things that I cannot come home without seeing and digesting in some fashion. Chris, I'd like to recommend three things that you want to see in Shanghai. And the first is a bronze vessel in the Shanghai Museum. There are a lot, a lot of things interesting there, but this one in particular, I think, embodies the classical Chinese culture and, to some extent, a certain kind of thinking. A bronze the, vessel. What period? Of uh, around third uh, and fourth century BC. Okay. Why? Well, it features a program, uh, essentially a cycle of seasonal change, and the idea is that uh, there's a great deal unknown and there's a great deal of anxiety about the unknown mm. and how to cope with the unknown. The Chinese early on thought that the nature is the best teacher. Mm. And therefore, um, if you want to have some kind of plan, then the best plan is to be modeled upon the pattern of change, that is the seasonal change, or the cycle of seasonal change. Mm. So I very much like what Chaz just said about the hedge the bet. Uh, Chinese from early on always love to hedge the bet and, and uh, alleviate certain anxiety about the future. Uh, they know that things are going to change. People are going to die. Things come to end. So the best way to have some kind of sense of the regularity of pattern. And we, once you have some a sense of a pattern, you can therefore... Um, hedge your bet and uh, fit things into some kind of your um, patterned system. So Gina, that, I can't <laughs> wait to get to that museum. What else? Um, the second thing I wonder you see is a greenhouse. It's a remarkable house, and its original owner was um, uh, named Wu Tongwen. In the 1930s, he sensed that the war is going to happen, mm. and, and he sensed that there was a great deal of need for military uniform. Therefore, he basically supplied uh, the green dye and made himself a uh, green dye tycoon and made a big fortune out of it. And once he had a big mm. fortune, he decided they wanted to build a new house. And then he picked the Hungarian architect, the best of the time, named Hudek, um, who initially fought in Russia in, um, and captured by Russian and mm. uh, was sent to Siberia. And he jumped from the train and um, uh, crossed the Chinese border and made his way to Shanghai, where he initially uh, worked for an American uh, design firm uh, called uh, R.A. Curie. And, then and his greenhouse is still there? His greenhouse is still there. And um, he, once he, he actually uh, designed a number of landmark buildings, including the Park Hotel, which is 22-story uh, hmm. high, uh, up to the 19. 80s, it was the highest building in China, mm. and and also the Grand Theater that showcased um, in the 1930s a lot of Hollywood films. But this greenhouse is one of the uh, probably least known um, from people outside China, outside of Shanghai, but uh, designed by Hudek. But a big 20th century east-west bridge. In yes, effect. yes. But uh, but what made it much more rememberable is actually it once had a visitor from. Um, uh, visitor named um, Leyden Stewart, who was ambassador to China in the 1940s. Mm. Uh, Leyden was born, actually, in the East Coast China to a Presbyterian missionary uh, parents, and then went to Virginia, where he was teased for his 
19th century dictum and uh, out of date uh, sartorial style. <laughs> he went back to uh, China and uh, founded uh, uh, became the first president of the Yinqing University, whose campus now occupied by Beijing University. Mm. And in 1940s, he became the ambassador uh, from 1946 to 1949. He was the ambassador to China. So what's his connection to the greenhouse again? Well, he, he was a great fan of good architectural design. He heard about the greenhouse, then he got him invited to the greenhouse where he had dinner with um, uh, Wu Tongwen, the original owner of the house. And then things didn't out, uh, pan out well. Uh, you know, from the American side, uh, there was a sense that uh, uh, Stuart essentially gave China away to the communists, whereas in China, mm. Mao... Um, regarded him as the symbol of American policy of aggression. So he d- didn't sit well mm. on both sides, and he was uh, most underappreciated and, and most inelegantly treated by both sides, I think. So what do I take away from that, that image of a failed, uh, <laughs> a broken bridge? Well, uh, to make things actually a bit more dramatic, that in fact uh, uh, Mao wrote this piece, and then during the Cultural Revolution, everyone remembered that essay that Mao wrote, Farewell to Stuart. And, and then uh, people uh, started to uh, uh, vandalize the house, and then the original owner sensed that his end has come, then uh, committed suicide. Oh. Leyden um, Stuart sounds too much like Leiden Stuart. And, um, but, but the interesting thing is that. Um, uh, Wu was survived by his wife. He committed suicide with his concubine, but he survived by his wife. Wife came from Bei family, and the Bei family had its own uh, architect, a young boy who was inspired by Hudek's design mm. of the greenhouse and other buildings. So he made it. Uh, he decided that he wanted to go to the United States to study architecture so that one day he would build tall buildings that could take him to the cloudy heaven. So he went to study in UPenn and uh, Harvard. And his name, if you spell uh, uh, in the old Weijiao system, or the he still does it now, would be P-E-I. Does that uh, ring a bell? Oi. So that's I'm Pei. And oh, uh, who, of course, uh, built... Um, um, the Kennedy, uh, Kennedy Library, Library yes. and the Easter building of uh, re- redesign of uh, the East uh, Wing of the National Gallery. So uh, essentially, the moral of the story is that um, you have Stuart, who is America, but deeply at heart a Chinese, and you have Ayn um, Pei, who is a Chinese, but deep at heart American. I can't wait to get there. One more thing that I must see. And, and, and we'll, we'll put it to Chaz Freeman and you, Yun Lee. What, 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 what else must I see? Uh, the third thing I would recommend is a martini bar at the place called the Xingtian Di, um, designed by a, our local man, uh, um, Ben Wood, who, and one of the remarkable things about this site is that it's also where the first Communist Party had its uh, first Congress um, held there, and Mao was present there in 1921. Do and we have uh, any photographs of Mao drinking a martini? <laughs> That's a good question. One could imagine, though. Uh, but probably the NSA has it. Yes. So uh, essentially what they did is that uh, uh, Ben worked with this Hong Kong developer, um, Vincent Liu, who had, who was, had 
uh, cosmopolitan sensibility, but also a deep connection to uh, Shanghai. So he looked around and he really liked uh, what uh, Ben Wood did in the Lincoln Road uh, Miami as a uh, innovative project, and so he. Uh, sort out Ben and the two of them uh, really hit it off and then uh, they started this project and what they uh, um, did was essentially to tear down the interior of uh, these red brick row houses and uh, letting the wall uh, keeping some kind of vestige to the past or memory of the past but uh, the interior uh, space was turned into some kind of uh, business space or high end uh, boutique um, shops, uh, coffee house, mm. and and he also uh, created an artificial lake in the area and uh, outdoor uh, dining, and uh, so his model becomes so um, fashionable and so welcomed that um, it become a little bit. It spoke to different people um, in different ways. Uh, the younger people regard that place as a trendy place. The old people regard that place as um, uh, a trigger of nostalgia, and the foreigners go there thinking that there's a bit of historical significance um, uh, associated with that place. So <laughs> now this model becomes so successful that every Chinese city wanted a Xintiandi, and Ben become very, very popular, and he's high in demand, and he's uh, com- uh, left and basically settled in Shanghai, and he said that, in fact, he could accomplish 10 times more in China um, compared with other architects who would probably take a, a lifetime to accomplish. So we have a bronze vessel, a greenhouse, and a martini bar. bar. Uh, Ch- Chai Sreeman, I wonder, you and Lee too, but Chai Sreeman first, do you know any of these landmarks? Oh, yes. Um, and I think <laughs> what you've just heard is uh, very revealing about uh, the importance of both history and anecdotes in China. And if I may... Um, I will add one. Please. Um, I have had a friend, he's now no longer with us, who was the son of Ambassador Leighton Stewart's uh, private secretary, Chinese secretary. Leighton Stewart was devoted to China, as Eugene just said. And uh, he asked that he be allowed to be buried on the campus of what is now Beijing University. Mm. Uh, But when uh, the United States and China broke relations... And he was expelled from China. Chairman Mao wrote a famous essay called Good Riddance, Leighton Stewart. (laughs) And um, because of this, despite the change in relations and everything else, uh, it was too politically controversial for Leighton Stewart to be buried on the Beijing uh, University campus. My friend, uh, who had the same Chinese surname as I, Fu, General became a general in the U.S. Army, the head of the of the uh, 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 lawyers in the in the in the army, um, and uh, devoted his whole life because his father told him that he should complete his uh, uncompleted duty of burying Leighton Stewart at Beijing University. He spent his whole life trying very hard to do this, and this was hmm. an example of filial piety, um, duty, uh, devotion, friendship uh, that transcended politics and two different cultures. And uh, it ended with Leighton Stewart being buried in Hangzhou, not in at Beijing University, but still on Chinese 
soil. So my friend died, I think, with a sense of fulfillment. Eugene Wang, please. Yes, uh, one uh, one um, um, interesting detail to that. Um, in fact, uh, it was uh, probably because Xi Jinping uh, was the uh, head of the Zhejiang, and he allowed that to happen. So it was after f- 46 years after uh, Stuart's death that the ashes finally was laid to uh, rest near Hangzhou. And it was a very moving scene. The Yanjing alumni actually uh, were present and played the Star Spangled Banner and Amazing Grace while the ashes were oh. lowered to the soil. I just love this stuff. And I'm wondering who is compiling all these these anecdotes. Leighton Stewart, the American ambassador who in his heart was Chinese, and I.M. Pei, the Chinese architect who's really American. I mean, this is priceless. I, I wonder, Yu Yun Lee, do you want to add your own <laughs> bit to the anecdotal uh, history of U.S. and China? You know, I think from, you know, I am the generation who, you know, after, so I was born in 72, so it was the, that generation. And interesting, I think, you know, my generation have, we, I think we have uh, less connection to these historically important figures but we are more connected to people who are really nobodies. So <laughs> I grew, I, I went to Beijing University and of course, you know, we grew up also memorizing, you know, Charman Mao's uh, essay. But I think, you know, history stops there for us. Mm. You know, after 89, I think history stopped there too. And I think especially people younger than me, you know, people born after 1980s, that history no longer matters. What matters to them more is, you know, the present moment, the present tense. That's fascinating. Chai Sriman, do you know, is there a political counterpart to that sort of break around Tiananmen Square? Well, I think um, it's all a product of the phenomenon that Evan Osnos's book describes, um, uh, and that is the sudden transformation of China from a drab, dull, very controlled place uh, to a colorful, wildly individualistic uh, uh, place full of acquisitive people. Um, mm. And the perhaps it's also connected, in a sense, to the institution of the one-child policy, uh, which came at the... Uh, in about 1979, 1980, um, uh, and which has resulted in a generation of uh, people who are thought by their elders to be spoiled brats, uh, very self-centered, very uh, selfish, uh, not so interested, uh, as Ms. Lee says, uh, in the past as in themselves and the present. So interesting. I mean, Evan... Osno speaks of a national narrative being splintered now into a billion individual uh, stories. I, I, in, in what time we have, I want to make a quick round here <laughs> with respect to uh, uh, Xi Jinping's China dream, Chinese dream. Uh, Yi Yun Li, get us started. What's, what's your China dream? And I want to hear oh. Eugene's and Chai Freeman's too. You know, my China dream probably is, I, you know, I don't live in China anymore, but I borrowed, I would borrow this from my mother. My mother always says, you know, her dream for China is before her death, Tiananmen Square massacre would be, you know, the government would 
admit that was something they did wrong. So that probably mm. is my mother's dream. That would become my dream for China. Fascinating. That the, the, the government would, would confess. Yes. Uh, History Eugene, would be reviewed. Yeah. Eugene Wang, what's your China dream? My China dream is actually, I, when I think about the Tang Dynasty, when China was most open, and in fact, that was a time when the foreign fashion could be uh, the prevalent fashion. Tang and, Dynasty, which, give us a date. Uh, uh, 618 to 906. And so uh, what that means is that uh, when one is most confident and one is least nationalistic. So um, I, mm. my China dream is the time when the Chinese is partly... Um, becoming less nationalistic, self-aware. Charles Freeman, you were in on uh, the creation of the new China Dream. What's yours today? Well, I'm not Chinese, uh, but I have uh, a great deal of affection uh, for many uh, Chinese friends and a lot of hope for China. And uh, what I hope is that the successful restructuring of the economy to correct some of the current problems of pollution, maldistribution of wealth, uh, uh, and so forth, uh, is followed by a period of political relaxation uh, that leads to a society in which uh, Chinese uh, can uh, pursue their own happiness in the public as well as the private sphere without uh, interference from the Chinese Communist Party. Hmm. Fascinating. My China dream is to feel some sort of seam and connection between the ancient China, which I studied in college with Arthur and Mary Wright a million years ago, uh, and this new New York, this new ultra-America, higher tech than anything we've seen uh, in Shanghai and Beijing right now. Thank you, Eugene Wang and Yi Yun Li and Chaz Freeman and Evan Osnos. Listeners, you can find an extended conversation with Evan Osnos on our website, radioopensource.org, and a multimedia interactive timeline of U.S.-China history that you won't be able to take your eyes off. Our show is produced by Kunal Jasti, Matt Ellison, Will Maddows, George Hicks, Mary McGrath, our executive producer, and me, Chris Lydon. Off to China. Join us next time on Open Source. <laughs>